and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the former head of the Russia-Ukraine desk at the State Department, who believes NATO should not be expanding eastward, but instead should be setting limits and saying no to partners and friends, because it is time for NATO to limit itself, not for Russia's sake, but for the sake of its own coherence and for its own capabilities of self-defence. Joining us is Michael Kimmage, a professor of history and department chair at the Catholic University of America, chair of the Kennan Institute Advisory Council, and a fellow at the German Marshall Fund. From 2014 to 2017, he served on the Secretary of State's policy planning staff, where he held the Russia-Ukraine portfolio. His latest book is The Abandonment of the West, A History of an Idea in American Foreign Policy, And we will discuss today's stage conversation on state TV between Russia's Foreign Minister Lavrov and Putin, in which Lavrov suggested there was a diplomatic path out of the crisis to be explored, to which Putin replied, good. Then we'll explore the possibility that the U.S. could find itself in two Cold Wars, the one we have now with Russia and another with China. Joining us to assess the growing ties between Russia and China is Gilbert Rosman, the Emeritus Musgrave Professor of Sociology at Princeton University and the Editor-in-Chief of the Assan Forum, a bi-monthly online journal on international relations in the Indo-Pacific region. He taught at Princeton from 1970 to 2013, specializing in the societies of China, Japan, Korea and Russia. And he's the author of International Relations and Asia's Northern Tier, Sino-Russian Relations and North Korea and Mongolia. Then finally, we will speak with Justin Guest, an Associate Professor of Policy and Government at George Mason University's Shah School of Policy and Government, where he studies immigration and the politics of demographic change. He's the author of five books, including The New Minority, White Working Class Politics in an Age of Immigration and Inequality, Crossroads, Comparative Immigration Regimes in a World of Demographic Change, and the forthcoming book, Majority Minority. He joins us to discuss his article at CNN, Why Latinos are Turning to the Republican Party and What Democrats Must Do to Hold On to the Minority, Soon-to-Be-Majority Vote. And before we go to our first guest, since we are now fully independent, your support for this program is vital to keep us online and on a growing number of radio stations across the country. And while we operate on a low budget, we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org to help ensure that background briefing is sustainable into the future so that we can continue to provide a daily news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests, both at home and abroad. And for those listeners who have issues with PayPal, We now have made it easier to donate simply by credit card. So if you are in a position to give support or have been meaning to but have been unable, please go to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Michael Kimmage, who's a professor of history and department chair at the Catholic University of America and chair of the Kennan Institute Advisory Council and a fellow at the German Marshall Fund. From 2014 to 2017, he served on the Secretary of State's policy planning staff, where he held the Russia-Ukraine portfolio. And his latest book is The Abandonment of the West, The History of an Idea in American Foreign Policy. 
Welcome to Background Briefing, Michael Kimmage. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And there was a somewhat staged discussion, colloquy between Foreign Minister Lavrov and President Putin on Russian state television, in which Lavrov said that there was sort of a, a glimmering of an opening that's worth pursuing and with the West and particularly with the United States. And uh, Putin said, good. So <laughs> that seems to be raising the hopes that there may be a diplomatic path to get out of this uh, standoff, which could turn into a war. Apparently, U.S. intelligence has suggested a war could start as early as Wednesday. So what do you make of this latest remark from Lavrov? Well, these are two certainly very starkly different scenarios, as you're suggesting, a war that may start on Wednesday and uh, suggestions of uh, an easing of tensions uh, today from Foreign Minister Lavrov and Putin. And in a sense, if we take a step back, these are the two trajectories that have been possible from the beginning of the crisis, that uh, certainly the capacity is there for Russia to mount a major invasion. And to a degree, the motivation is there, that this is their way of asserting themselves in the region, uh, taking the initiative, having others respond uh, to their actions. Uh, at the same time, uh, there are many ways in which this kind of venture would be exceptionally risky for Russia, which opens the possibility that this is really a very heavy-handed way of conducting diplomacy. So it's certainly not an end to the crisis, whatever happened uh, today. The crisis will go on uh, to take on new forms, uh, but uh, the diplomatic outcome is not uh, is not implausible. I think one has to be careful not to be deterministic in either direction. So you were uh, interviewed in a recent article at CNN, What Created the New, More Aggressive Putin? And you are suggesting that NATO should set limits on Ukraine's entry. It may be painful, but it just to quote from your conversation with CNN, it entails saying no to partners and friends. It carries its own risk, but it is time for NATO to limit itself, not for Russia's sake, but for the sake of its own coherence and for its own capacities of self-defense. So is that opinion understood within the ranks of NATO and the, and the NATO membership? I know they are not unanimous, obviously. They have to have, operate in consensus. But that's a different opinion from what I've been hearing lately. That's for sure. No, um, from Secretary Stoltenberg, the, the head of NATO, to President Biden, to, uh, as far as I know, every uh, leader of a member state of the NATO alliance, there's nobody who is openly in favor of, of closing the open door policy. So what I'm arguing for is something that's eccentric uh, and idiosyncratic, but uh, to my mind, of course, correct. I think that you want to factor in the uh, circumstance that NATO is a 30-member alliance. Uh, it's expanded enormously since the end of the Cold War in 1991. Uh, it's enormously difficult uh, to defend, and it borders a region that has now become very unstable and, uh, and, and, and really quite dangerous. Uh, you know, I think uh, all good things come to an end. Uh, all good things have a limit. Uh, and it would be immensely beneficial for NATO uh, to define itself as something that is uh, that is complete. Uh, yes, it's true that that would be music to uh, Vladimir Putin's ears, uh, and that's not a reason to do something like that. But it's also a reason 
not to do something like that, uh, or it's also not a reason not to do something like that. You know, I think that it would be for the good of the alliance. It would make it more coherent, would make it more uh, uh, comprehensible, would make it easier to defend. So obviously, a war has to be avoided, and indeed, a new Cold War with Russia. I don't know whether it can be avoided, but maybe it can be tamed a little. But the idea that the United States could actually end up with two Cold Wars, one with Russia and China, ought to be getting the attention of our leaders, don't you think? I mean, it's bad enough having one Cold War, but two seems like too much. Well, that's certainly a major consideration in this uh, in this crisis. Resources are finite, and uh, China and Russia are both you know, very formidable countries uh, in their own right. And so um, it's one of the most important things for the United States uh, to navigate. I don't think that the U.S. can be pressured into concessions or into backtracking out of fear uh, of either China uh, or Russia, but uh, there has to be, uh, I think, a, a careful and prudent sense of how far of how far we can go. Uh, and, uh, you know, we can just go back to the point about NATO uh, in this regard. Ukraine is an important partner of the United States. The U.S. has commitments there. We want to see democracy thrive in Ukraine. It certainly wants to see the people stay safe and secure. But Ukraine is not a treaty ally of the United States. And so it's valuable to set certain limits there, uh, precisely because overcommitment in Ukraine uh, would uh, uh, engender difficulties uh, in Asia and, uh, you know, lead in a very negative direction. But in terms of your argument that it's time for NATO to limit itself, not for Russia's sake, but for the sake of its own coherence and for its own capacities for self-defense. If there is a Russian invasion of Ukraine, then all bets would be off, right? Defense budgets would go up and uh, your suggestions would be lost in the Fuhrer. I'm not sure. I don't think all bets would be off. I think you know it's important to remember that NATO is a defensive military alliance, and it's had very bad experiences when it's gotten confused about that. So NATO's out-of-area missions in Afghanistan uh, and Libya proved ultimately to be to be failures. I don't think NATO really succeeds when it goes outside of its, uh, of its territory. So, you know, one thing that would be very important for NATO is a wider war between Russia and Ukraine would be not to get involved. That's part of its mission uh, and uh, would be to the good of the alliance, of course where there's spillover effects of the war into Poland, into the Baltic Republic, then that does become a NATO issue. If there's a migrant crisis, if the war seems to be spreading, in a sense, to countries that are NATO members, that's an altogether different story. Where you may see change in the event of a wider war in terms of NATO would be with uh, Finland and Sweden, which have signaled that they might wish to join the alliance. And I suspect that there, if Russia were to mount a major invasion of Ukraine, uh, I think that that might pave the way for Finland uh, and Sweden to join. But it wouldn't change the relationship between the NATO member states and Ukraine itself. And again, I'm speaking with Michael Kimmage, who's a professor of history and department chair at the Catholic University of America, chair of the Kennan Institute Advisory Council, and a fellow at the German Marshall Fund. From 2014 to 2017, he served on the Secretary of State's policy planning staff, where he held the Russia-Ukraine portfolio. And his latest book is The Abandonment of the West, A History of an Idea in American Foreign Policy. Well, you mentioned uh, NATO going out of its area into Afghanistan and Libya. In Afghanistan, of course, they invoked Article 5, 
which means an attack on one is an attack on all. Putin himself said rhetorically the other day what would happen if Ukraine were a member state of NATO and it attacked or tried to recapture Crimea, would the United States invoke Article 5, which would be war with Russia, which, of course, given them, the one thing the two countries have in common is they have, both have massive nuclear arsenals. So <laughs> what do you make of that? Well, I think that that was a comment that Putin made at a press conference where he seemed to be in a very sour mood uh, and was in some respects uh, uh, unnecessarily dramatizing uh, the whole situation. I mean, the fact of the matter is that Ukraine is not a member of NATO. And what makes the whole debate a little bit academic is that, in a sense, everybody knows that it never will be uh, a member of NATO. I think Russia knows, Ukraine probably knows. The United States and Germany certainly know that Ukraine will not Join for exactly the reason that you mentioned. You know, Crimea uh, has been annexed by Russia. You have a Russian military presence in eastern Ukraine, and Russia is not going to leave Crimea uh, unless pushed out militarily, and that just doesn't make sense uh, in terms of uh, you know the decision to, to to bring Ukraine into NATO. So, you know, it's 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 an oddity of the current diplomatic situation that the U.S. refuses to give up on the open door in part because of optics and public perception. And Putin goes on and on about NATO, not because he uh, truly fears NATO expansion into Ukraine, but also because of optics and public perception. So it's a game of words up to a point. Well, so are you suggesting then, Marco Kimmage, that that massive military deployment is merely there to intimidate and somehow we are being hysterical, as Putin has been suggesting? Or are we to take our intelligence people seriously? And they seem to think that they have indications. Obviously, we don't know what they are. Uh, that it could a real war could break out at any moment, and it could happen as early as Wednesday. Even though the new German Chancellor, of course, will be in Moscow on on uh, the fifteenth. So, and we talked about it, two cold wars: one with the Russia and one with China. The Olympics are over on the twentieth. So the suggestion has been that nothing would happen until after that because Putin wouldn't want to rain on Xi Jinping's parade. So address those, if you will. I know it's all speculation, but still. Sure. Sure. Well, I think that the U.S. intelligence is likely very good uh, when it comes to this question. And it's certainly remarkable that the U.S. government is sharing it as publicly uh, as it is. But I would take it certainly very, very seriously. Does it mean that the invasion will happen? Of course not, but uh, there's uh, every reason to be, uh, you know, very seriously alarmed by the claims the White House was making on Friday about possibly February 16th as a date uh, of invasion or in the coming weeks or indeed in the uh, in the coming months. I think that what makes this plausible uh, is, of course, the military installations in the first place, uh, but I don't think it's easy for Putin to backtrack and looking at the situation candidly, Putin has not gotten that much from whatever he's done in the last couple of months. He's gotten a lot of meetings. He's gotten a lot of attention. Uh, he's put himself at the center of many, many media stories, uh, but he has not gotten the concessions that he said he's seeking. So can he back down without getting those concessions and still look credible or fearsome as he wishes to, as he wishes to do? Uh, it's hard to believe, uh, you know, the perhaps most optimistic scenario, which is not that optimistic, is that Putin will keep on the pressure for the next couple of months and just threaten to invade almost permanently 
uh, but not necessarily uh, invade directly and attempt to use that pressure to guide the diplomatic conversation to the place where he wishes to take it. But I think that if you had to guess, I think you just go with the evidence that's before our eyes, that they have a massive force ready to invade, poised to invade, and probably they will. Well, it is a bit rich that Putin has created this situation. This is all his doing. And yet he's saying that it's our problem. It's NATO's problem. It's almost like the arsonist is the fire brigade. I mean, he's saying that basically you've got to stop this. It's only, I guess the analogy would be you burn down your neighbor's house, then you tell the people across the street that they're responsible. I think that's a that's a that's a fair characterization. I mean, I wouldn't. Uh, I simply wouldn't put too much stock in the narratives that he uh, that he puts forward. It's uh, uh, in a sense inevitable that he's going to justify himself and portray himself to a Russian population uh, as a victim and portray the West as the uh, aggressor. Of course, he has a very large media apparatus to broadcast that view. Uh, to the Russian population that at times resonates with some of the ways in which Russians look at the West or look at the outside world, but it's in every sense uh, a narrative. Uh, This is a crisis that goes back now for eight years. It's rooted in the very complicated relationship between Ukraine and Russia, uh, and it's clear that Ukraine has never attacked Russia and poses no direct threat to Russia, and yet Russia has several times taken aggressive military action from Crimea to eastern Ukraine uh, to pursue its goal uh, of a neutral Ukraine or its goal of a Ukraine under Russian influence. That's the story uh, of this situation. What we're living through now is the latest chapter of that. Uh, But the sort of theatrical grievances of Vladimir Putin uh, ultimately are about Russian domestic politics uh, and are, are, are quite misleading in terms of an understanding of this particular situation. But in the last couple of minutes, uh, Michael Kimmage, it's hard to get a a handle on public opinion in Russia, but most analysts have suggested that the Russian people would be dead against killing Ukrainians and also having Russian body bags come home. And uh, Putin himself, in a long essay recently, made the point that the Russians and the Ukrainians are one in the same, we're parts of the whole. So in effect, if Putin starts killing Ukrainians. He's in effect killing his own people. That's uh, a, a very big messaging problem for Putin to be, uh, to be sure, and maybe a, a reason why he would be reluctant in the end to mount a real uh, invasion. That could be evidence for uh, this whole situation as one that's really uh, a kind of thuggish form of diplomacy as opposed to. Uh, the prelude to a, a major European war. On the other hand, uh, I wouldn't underestimate the sense in which not just Putin, but many Russians feel uh, that they were left out uh, of the post-Cold War settlement, that Russia has no voice in Europe, uh, that Europe is run by the United States uh, and done and sort of run in a fairly aggressive and high-handed fashion. And also, if Ukrainian soldiers start killing Russians, they'll be killing them uh, at times with Western ammunition, uh, you know, Stinger missiles, Javelin missiles, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, and that could well create a kind of rally around the flag effect uh, for Putin. Uh, I don't think that the war in its early phases, were it to happen, would be unpopular, much like the Iraq war 
in its first few months was quite popular with public opinion uh, in the United States. The question is what happens over the long haul. And as you indicate, the question is what happens if you would have a humanitarian catastrophe uh, or atrocities. And that could well work uh, on Russian opinion in ways that are damaging to Putin's own political prospects within Russia. Well, just in closing, he did he dodge the bullet on the shoot down of the Malaysian airliner? And he was responsible for that. What, over 300 people were killed, innocent civilians, along with 80 children. Dodge the bullet in the sense that did he not get punished, or do you think... Right, well, yeah, did the Russian people, were they ashamed of what happened? Oh, I, I doubt that a majority of Russians believe that uh, that the Russian government or, or Russian-backed separatists were responsible. I think that Putin has right. a fairly you know, uh, prominent control, fairly powerful control of public opinion in Russia, and what the Russian government does in situations like this is not necessarily persuade Russians of its own point of view. They muddy the waters and, you know, point to conspiracy theories and uh, and counter evidence and complexities uh, and then just make it difficult for Russians to believe anything about this situation. Uh, and that's probably where things stand with the majority when it comes to, uh, to MH17. So I, I don't think it's cost him uh, a great deal in terms of domestic Russian politics, no. And presumably... It, the same would apply if he went to war against uh, Ukraine. Well, I think that with, with Ukraine, there's one, there's one big complicating factor, and it's not so much what Putin writes about Russians and Ukrainians being one people and and those sorts of historical arguments. I don't know how many Russians really share those views. Probably a lot, but you know there may be many who look at things differently. The complicating factor for Russia in Ukraine is intermarriage that you have huge numbers of Russian families that are intermarried. Just think back to the leaders of the Soviet Union. Raisa Gorbachev was Ukrainian. Gorbachev himself was, I believe, half Ukrainian. Khrushchev was partially Ukrainian. Brezhnev was mostly Ukrainian. Uh, and that's just a handful of leaders from the Soviet Union. These two countries are linked by family ties more than anything. So that's a huge problem for Putin if you start to see you know, hunger, mass casualties, civilian casualties in Ukraine. It may not be that Russians look over and say, well, this is a group of people who are identical to us, but they will see this as a group of people connected to us. Uh, and that's potentially very problematic for Putin. Well, Mark Akimich, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you so much for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Michael Kimmich, who's a professor of history and department chair at the Catholic University of America and chair of the Kennan Institute Advisory Council and a fellow at the German Marshall Fund. From 2014 to 2017, he served on the Secretary of State's policy planning staff where he held the Russia-Ukraine portfolio. And his latest book is The Abandonment of the West, The History of an Idea in American Foreign Policy. We can take a brief station break. We're back exploring the possibility that the U.S. could find itself in two Cold Wars, the one we now have with Russia and another with China.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Gilbert Rosman, who's the Emeritus Musgrave Professor of Sociology at Princeton University and the Editor-in-Chief of the ASAN Forum, a bi-monthly online journal on international relations in the Indo-Pacific region. He taught at Princeton from 1970 to 2013, specializing in the societies of China, Japan, Korea, and Russia. And he's the author of International Relations and Asia's Northern Tier, Sino-Russian Relations, and North Korea and Mongolia. Welcome to Background Briefing, Gilbert Rosman. Happy to join you. Well, thanks for joining us, Gilbert. And there is something of a new Cold War emerging between the United States and Russia. And if, as American intelligence suggests, that a war could break out as early as Wednesday, clearly that will deepen the alienation between the two countries and make it much more tense and take us back to the worst days of the Cold War, even though we certainly weren't having a shooting war right inside what was then the Soviet Union. But in general, as bad as that is, is it possible that we could end up with two Cold Wars, a Cold War with a resurgent Russia and another Cold War with an incredibly much more powerful country, China? Uh, Well, first of all, Russia has been thinking we're in a Cold War for the last 10 years. So if you read Russian stories about the relationship with the United States, they call it the new Cold War. So what's different is we're seeing the development of a hot war in Ukraine. It won't be a war between the United States and Russia, but it will be a uh, an aggressive Russia that doesn't abide by the rules. Putin is breaking norms, but the Americans hadn't realized that we're in a Cold War with Russia. We should have when Russia went into Crimea and the eastern part of Ukraine uh, and the way Russia has been talking about the United States for a long time. So there's no real um, change in the fact we're in a Cold War, but there's a danger of a hot war, which is already affecting uh, uh, Ukraine this week, we think. Now, as far as China's concerned, uh, I'm not so sure they want a Cold War. Uh, They certainly are in a relationship with Russia where they want to use Russia to reduce U.S. power. They're against the expansion of NATO. They're in favor of uh, uh, breaking up U.S. alliances in, in East Asia. But that's different from saying a Cold War is desirable or we're going to join Russia in the, in the way Russia is treating Ukraine, I think that's a little bit uncertain right now. So what China and Russia seem to have in common, though, is at least that's what we're told, that the leaders, Putin and Xi Jinping, both see America as a fading power and both think that President Biden is weak. Uh, I think that China will realize in this struggle over Ukraine that Biden is not weak, that the United States alliances are strengthening, uh, that uh, NATO is regrouping. Uh, The U.S. alliances have been strengthening in Asia, as seen in Blinken's foreign ministry meeting in Australia the other day. Uh, I don't think the Chinese have the same timetable as Russia. Putin wants, you know, immediate satisfaction. 
uh, getting back his uh, his territory. I don't think he will think the U.S. is weak when he finds all the responses that result from from this kind of action. And I don't think the Chinese, they have a longer timetable. I don't think they think this is the right time to uh, test the U.S. And in fact, uh, they may be unhappy with what happens uh, if Putin tests the U.S. too strongly. So then are these increased tensions or how much do these increased tensions have to do with the leadership in Russia and the leadership in China? I mean, there's a number of reports coming out about China uh, under Xi Jinping, how there's a growing backlash to his more assertive foreign policy and the wolf warrior diplomacy. And in general, it's a perception both in Asia and Southeast Asia and around the world of kind of Chinese bullying. So is the growing tensions short of a Cold War with China, but certainly with Russia, to do with the leadership? Because what's happening in Ukraine is entirely something that Vladimir Putin has created. Uh, I think that there's a leadership uh, consensus in China and Russia to get tougher. Xi Jinping came to power in 2012, and there, there was already a major change in China's foreign policy as early as 20, uh, 2008. Um, so I think that uh, the situation is, uh, is partly due to leaders who are, who are aggressive uh, and worrying some in their own country by that degree of aggression, but it's also due to a, a tendency in the elites over a period of time. Uh, I don't think the opposition is uh, should be something Americans count on uh, that uh, Putin by going into Ukraine will arouse a significant opposition in Russia, although I think there will be a meaningful opposition, or that Xi Jinping is is in danger because he's pushed the card too hard. Although if he goes strongly with Russia in this case, uh, his situation could suffer some because I think there would be some an economic blowback against China. And China has alienated a lot of its neighbors. But to join with Russia now, if Russia attacks Ukraine this week, as we anticipate, uh, Xi Jinping will be saying, I'm, I agree with that strategy. That's the right thing to do. And I think there'll be so much opposition to what Putin is doing that Xi Jinping would just create more opposition to China by taking that kind of action. And again, I'm speaking with Gilbert Rosman, the Emeritus Musgrave Professor of Sociology at Princeton University and the Editor-in-Chief of the ASEAN Forum, a bi-monthly online journal on international relations in the Indo-Pacific region. He's taught at Princeton from 1970 to 2013 and specializing in the societies of China, Japan, Korea, and Russia. And he's the author of the international of international relations in Asia's northern tier, Sino-Russian relations, and North Korea and Mongolia. Well, the one difference between China and Russia <clears throat> is the extent to which Xi Jinping has created a surveillance state that is absolutely ubiquitous, is it not? I mean, he has much more control over his own people and the media and what they think and read and believe than Putin does, and I think Putin is actually trying to imitate Xi Jinping's yes. success, is he not? I think Xi, Putin has cracked down a lot 
banned um, memorial and other uh, NGOs. Uh, he's cracked down on the media. He's cracked down on Navalny and dissent. Uh, but uh, I think there's a substantial part of the urban educated population of Russia that is not content with the direction he's taking the country in. But I think in Xi Jinping's case, just because he has so many surveillance elements doesn't mean that within the leadership there isn't a, uh, a dissent about uh, moving aggressively right now uh, and cutting off China from the outside world and acting with impunity and standing with Russia. My guess is there are a lot of people in China who don't think that going with Russia right now is such a good idea. Uh, so, but in both cases, the leaders are very, very strong, and they're likely to get their way in the short run. Well, there's been a lot of speculation that Putin wouldn't go to war until the 20th, when the Olympics are over. So, is there any sense that the Chinese would be upset if Putin reigned on their parade? I think so, and after all, there are also Paralympics that will take place later. Um, I think they will be upset. Um, I don't think the message from the Putin-Xi meeting on February 4th was that uh, Xi gave Putin a blank check to do what he wants. I think he came out strongly against NATO expansion, but there wasn't a word about Ukraine in that meeting. Uh, and that was publicized in their statement. Uh, so I would say uh, Putin uh, probably does not have a, a buy-in from China in what he's doing, but China is also not going to stand against him. Uh, they have good relations, actually, with Ukraine, uh, and they'll be hesitant and they'll maybe watchful uh, as they see what happens here. Uh, it's not a, a slam dunk that China joins with Russia and starts putting more pressure on Taiwan uh, or acts as if we, they too are part of a very deepening Cold War. So if there is a war in Ukraine and NATO or the EU retaliates or the gas supply is cut off, and, and we know from the recent meeting in the White House with the new German Chancellor that Biden was really kept stressing that if the tanks cross the border, they will cancel Nord Stream 2. And he couldn't really get the new Olaf Schultz, a new chancellor, to categorically endorse that. But let's assume that there's a cutoff of energy supplies and the U.S. tries to make up with liquid natural gas from the United States and Qatar and, and Algeria, of course, is also another source, and they have an existing pipeline. But obviously the Europeans will suffer. But at the end of the day, so will the Russians in terms of losing a huge market. Could they make up that market in the East by shipping gas to China, which is obviously a huge customer, along with you know South Korea and, and even Japan? Well, first of all, I don't, just because the U.S. is so strongly against Nord Stream 2 and it would not go forward, doesn't mean there would be an energy cutoff. Uh, the European countries are intent on keeping supplies of Russian energy. It would be Russia that would have to, in response to sanctions, decide to use 
energy cutoffs to punish the European countries. Uh, that would then turn the U.S. to bringing LNG and other energy to Europe as quickly as possible. Uh, as for China, you can't make up uh, um, distribution through pipelines and other ways uh, in the short term. Um, they may agree to a long-term construction of a new pipeline that's under under debate already. Uh, they may uh, they may try to help Russia in, in certain ways, uh, but what we saw in 2014 that the Chinese drove a pretty hard bargain. Uh, they were not so generous to Russia. Their investments did not increase substantially. Uh, I think Putin was rather disappointed by the Chinese response to the uh, Crimean War and the first struggle over Ukraine. So I think China will take advantage of a situation like that to put more pressure on Russia and to gain gain more concessions. There are a lot of areas where China and Russia uh, have differences and China could use this. Uh, Russia would be far more dependent on China. Yes, Russia would get some benefit from its energy ties to the uh, to Asia, but uh, not nearly enough to compensate. So, just in the last couple of minutes, then, uh, Gilbert Rosman, let's talk about the idea of of the, not just the two Cold Wars, one with, with Russia and one with China, but the idea, and we've discussed before, how different it is from. Nixon's ending the Cold War with China, meeting with Mao, and essentially putting the U.S. in the catbird seat, being able to play off the Soviet Union against China. The tables have turned now, but how much in the long run do you see Russia and and China getting along in the East? Because the fundamental difference is that there's a massive population in China and a very, very thin population of Russians in the East and a lot of resources in the East as well, timber, etc., and some border disputes. I believe the Chinese still have claims against Vladivostok. So give us a sense of what the future looks like there. The Chinese said they have no more claims. They said the final border demarcation took place in 2004, Uh, but there are people in China who keep raising the issue of the humiliation from Russia. So, but it's not part of official policy at all. Um, the Chinese Russian relationship is, uh, is a virtual alliance based on far reaching common interests and common identities, uh, relating to historic history and relating to, uh, the legacy of communism and, and beyond. Uh, I don't see that uh, diminishing substantially. They have their differences and there'll be struggles and Chinese arrogance will test the Russians quite a bit. Uh, in fact, if uh, Russia is thrown more in China's lap, I think that's more likely to lead to more tensions in the future. But I don't see any reason to think that China is trying to take over the Russian Far East or the Russian Siberia, it, the Chinese don't have, make more money than the Russians in those areas. The Chinese uh, 
can buy the resources and get the resources from Russia at good prices anytime they want. There's not much there. It's a cold, barren area. It's not much there that China really wants. They're, they're aiming for much bigger stakes. Taiwan is China's number one prize. Russia's looking to Europe, Eastern areas, the former Soviet Union. And so they both, for the foreseeable future, will see the United States as their primary target, and they will try to keep their relationship from, from souring. I think we are, this is a relationship that's been built on 30 years of improvements. And right now, those are continuing, and that's worrisome to uh, the United States. It means we will have some elements of the Cold War uh, with both countries, but if Russia doesn't coordinate well with China and steps you know, too aggressively, uh, it could end up alienating China and damaging uh, its foreign policy efforts. Well, Gilbert Rosman, I thank you so much for joining us here today. You're welcome, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Gilbert Rosman, who's Emeritus Musgrave Professor of Sociology at Princeton University and the Editor-in-Chief of the ASEAN Forum, a bi-monthly online journal on international relations in the Indo-Pacific region. He taught at Princeton from 1970 to 2013, specializing in the societies of China, Japan, Korea, and Russia, and he's the author of International Relations and Asia's Northern Tier, Sino-Russian Relations and North Korea and Mongolia. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into why Latinos are turning to the Republican Party and what Democrats must do to hold on to the minority, soon-to-be-majority vote. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Justin Guest, who's an Associate Professor of Policy and Government at George Mason University Shah School of Policy and Government, where he studies immigration and politics of demographic change. He's the author of five books, including The New Minority, White Working Class Politics in an Age of Immigration and Inequality, Crossroads, Comparative Immigration Regimes in a World of Demographic Change, and his forthcoming book, Majority Minority. And he has an article at CNN, Why Latinos Are Turning to the Republican Party. Welcome to Background Briefing, Justin Guest. Thanks for the invitation, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Justin. And in uh, 2020, Donald Trump got more Latino votes than he did in 2016, in spite of what many see as a four years of ruinous misrule. So what explains that? And by the well, way, there, he started off. He started off in 2016, coming down the escalator, calling Mexicans rapists and murderers. Yeah, it's quite surprising uh, for even the most seasoned observers of American politics. Um, but what I'm arguing in in the CNN piece and and more broadly in my forthcoming book, uh, Majority Minority, is that the way to understand this this phenomenon among many is not just about how Latinos see the Republican Party or the Democratic Party but rather how Latinos perceive themselves, of how they perceive their place and position in the, in the United States, their American identity, 
and, and how those parties are, are interacting with those self-perceptions. And in many ways, um, Latinos are, are, are simply integrating and assimilating into American society, um, and in many ways reflecting a lot of the same norms uh, that may otherwise characterize Republicans, uh, more socially conservative values, and also a, a steady drift uh, towards identifying themselves as white uh, as well, despite their Hispanic heritage. About 60% of all U.S. Latinos uh, identify as white on census forms. So, you know, these trends basically mean that many Latinos, when they listen to Trump, um, castigate Mexicans and immigrants um, and, and use a variety of racial and, and xenophobic innuendo, they didn't feel like they were necessarily under attack. In many cases, they may even believe some of it. So how much does Catholicism play a role? I mean, it seems to be an, an assumption that Catholicism equals conservative votings, but you have, you know, a liberal wing of the Catholic Church. It's not monolithic. It may be monolithic on the Supreme Court because they're all extremely conservative Catholics, but in general, there's a lot of diversity within the Catholic faith. That's right. No, I think that I think blaming everything on Catholicism would be far too simplistic. Uh, I, I think that there's a lot of things going on here. Um, and, and in many cases, it's not just the, the Catholic uh, religious backgrounds of Latinos that might make them more socially conservative. In many cases, it's also where they're coming from, where their families are coming from uh, inside of their countries of origin. Um, you know, Mexicans who have come over to the United States were primarily coming from uh, the more rural parts of Mexico. Uh, similarly, this, similar is true for people from a variety of other places. They weren't coming from more liberal or cosmopolitan um, uh, cities and capitals. And so I think that there's more at play here than just Catholicism, but no doubt there's some role played by Catholicism. Well, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is championing some progressive Latino candidates down in Texas, running against, uh, in at least one case, against a conservative Latino incumbent, a Democratic incumbent. What do you think are her chances? Or another way to put it would be, what advice would you give her? Well, look, uh, each of these races is going to have a, a race by race uh, di di dynamic to it. And so I, I don't think there's a sort of um, uh, universal uh, approach to all of this, um, except that, you know, I don't think that we can simply presume, um, particularly South Texas, uh, Tejanos, as they're called, uh, as they refer to themselves in many cases, uh, to simply be uh, uh, automatic and reliable Democrats as, as they once were. And, and, you know, to go back to your point about uh, Catholicism, you know, we do see a lot of interaction between uh, people whose views lean towards racial resentment or patriarchy uh, and, and gender roles. You know, these things are actually um, uh, uh, correlated, at least, uh, with more greater favorability towards Republicans and Republican, Republican Party and Republican candidates. Um, so I think that uh, it, it really is a case by case matter, a, a district by district matter. Um, and, and there is no one size fits all approach. Well, would Beto O'Rourke be, I mean, he's Tejano, isn't he? I don't actually know that he's Tejano. Uh, mm. I don't, I'm, I'm not familiar enough uh, with, his, with his family background. Uh-huh. Well, I'm, uh, he certainly tries to appeal to Tejanos, I guess. Yeah, maybe with well, that all, Irish, all, Irish name, is, <laughs> he may all, not be. <laughs> well, effectively, all, te all Texas politicians must. You know, t I mean, Tejanos make up a, a significant po uh, share of the population. Latinos more broadly uh, make a significant share of, of the Texas population. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, this is precisely the, the, the concern with appealing uh, to Latinos in Texas is what inspired 
the Karl Rove's attempt uh, to lead President uh, George W. Bush to try to make a more direct and concerted appeal to this population, this subgroup back in 2000 and 2004. He thought he could reach them with what they called compassionate conservatism. And in fact, actually, the result was really strong. Uh, George W. Bush, um, uh, to this day, attracted the largest share of U.S. Latino voters uh, at around 44 percent in 2004. Um, Donald Trump actually came in second now with his 38 percent share um, uh, in, in, in 2020. So, you know, I do think, and of course he did that without really a very concerted appeal to the Latino population. And I think that's, what's really scaring Democrats. Right. Particularly with, as I mentioned earlier, with these racist remarks about Mexicans being rapists and murderers and, and building the wall and gen generally creating divisions and frictions within this country and seem to demonize the Latino community. But but I think that that's actually an important point that you make, though, Ian. You know, uh, not all Latinos necessarily have a pan-Latin identity such that an attack on the Mexicans is interpreted as an attack on Puerto Ricans or on Cubans or on Colombians. Uh, and so, you know, I think that this is also showing the limits of pan-Latin identity. And again, I'm speaking with Justin Guest, an Associate Professor of Policy and Government at George Mason University's Shah School of Policy and Government, where he studies immigration and the politics of demographic change. He's the author of five books, including The New Minority, White Working Class Politics in an Age of Immigration and Inequality, Crossroads, Comparative Immigration Regimes in a World of Demographic Change, and his forthcoming book, Majority Minority. And he has an article at CNN, Why Latinos are Turning to the Republican Party. So you say that Hispanic eligible voters account for 39% of the overall increase in the nation's eligible voting population since 2000. So clearly this is a block that the Democrats, I mean, the Democrats have got a lot of problems on their plate as, to begin with in terms of losing the white working class. And we're talking about a, a GOP, the face of whom are some pretty radical people like uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates and Jim Jordan. I don't for the life of me, I don't see what the appeal to the Latino community would be with the with the people who are getting all the headlines now. But in general, is there any sense that the Democrats get it in terms of the conversation we're having, uh, Justin? So I, I don't think that there is a scenario. I don't think there's a world where you know, the entirety of, of Hispanics in the United States shift to the Republican Party. What we're really talking about here is Republicans nibbling at the Democratic margins. Um, the way much of U.S. electoral politics works these days is really turning out, you know, your, your base and then trying to just do damage control in the regions where you're less popular. And so if, if what, what's happening here is that if the, if, if the Republicans can basically um, shave away percentage points of democratic advantages amongst Latinos, that's going to make it a, a harder path to victory for Democrats across different states and districts. And so what it might do, the silver lining here is that, you know, for those of us who believe that the Democratic Party can't, cannot rest complacently on demographic change, it may mobilize them to try to make a broader appeal um, because they're losing, you know, white and white working class rural counties of the country, um, you know, to an 80 to 20 tune or 75, 25. And those are really hard margins to make up, even if you're doing much better in more urban and suburban regions. So hopefully, you know, this is a wake up call, not only that you can't take Latinos uh, for granted and treat them so uh, monolithically, uh, but also that you have to broaden your base 
um, uh, beyond the sort of urban liberal centers uh, where it's currently centered. But given that there is a more than a whiff of white identity politics, white supremacy in the, the Republican Party, certainly with the January 6th insurrection being an example, how does that play with the... You were saying earlier, Justin Guest, that Latinos mostly, a lot of them, identify as white, but surely they don't, they don't embrace white supremacy, do they not? Well, I mean, look, it depends on what we mean by white supremacy, but do they do they demonstrate similar propensities towards racial resentment? Uh, yes, in many cases, some do. Do they have conservative social values um, to the extent that they may overlook the white supremacist nature of the Republican uh, leadership in some cases? Yes, they might. Uh, and, and, you know, people vote for different reasons and they overlook, you know, certain imperfections when you only have a two party system. You don't have many choices. And so, yeah, I think what's happening here is that Latino identity is, is, is evolving in such a way that people are further and further from their families, you know, uh, ancestors, immigrants arrival, uh, not necessarily identifying in a pan-ethnic manner with more recent arrivals who are of equally Latin backgrounds, but from different countries and in different uh, socioeconomic statuses. And so they don't feel as subject. They don't feel like they're in the crosshairs of this, uh, you know, white nationalism or, or of this um, uh, xenophobic uh, nativism. So in terms of representation of Latinos in government in the House and Senate, it would seem the Democrats are certainly ahead in that regard, aren't they? In terms of uh, Latino representation as in the, the elected as officials? Elected officials in both the House and the Senate. Yeah. Yeah, What's no, the Democrats, breakdown? Democrats certainly are. So I don't know the exact breakdown, but Democrats certainly are. But there's a difference between uh, what's called descriptive representation, where people actually look like the people we're wondering if they represent. So that's you know like having you know Sonia Sotomayor in, in, in the Supreme Court um, uh, or, or having a senator or, or a legislator. Um, and then there's a difference between that and, and substantive representation, meaning that the representative is actually acting in the interest of that subgroup, independent of their own race or ethnic background. And, and so, you know, you would hope that people are evaluating um, politicians on the basis of their substantive representation. But of course, descriptive representation matters. And I think that that is also where Democrats have a leg up, but maybe not for long. You know, there are a number of, uh, of, of Latin origin um, uh, Republican candidates uh, coming down the pipeline, and that's going to continue. Um, and, and in many ways, you know, this this reflects the fact that many of these Latino um, uh, Americans are more distant from that immigrant heritage uh, and, and, and more integrated into U.S. politics such that they don't identify uh, with Im people of immigrant backgrounds. In many cases, you know, when we think about, you know, the Tejanos that, that, I, example, that I use as an example in, in the CNN article today, um, you know, Tejanos uh, are, are in some cases, you know, sixth, seventh, eighth generation Americans you know, we have Jewish, Greek, Italian Americans who are like fourth or fifth generation. None of them identify as immigrants in many cases, uh, or many of them at least have forgotten those ties. You know, we have Irish immigrants that are, are, are of a more recent arrival than many of those Tejanos. And so in many ways, it's, it's sort of a double standard to expect, you know, that uh, that that Mexican immigrants from six, you know, seven generations ago are going to be really in touch with that immigrant history, but not expect the same from an Italian family. And so that's really what you're seeing here is that uh, more and more Latin families uh, are, are deepening their ties in the United States and maybe more subject to its nationalism. 
So with Latinos joining the GOP, I mean, what I find extraordinary, uh, Justin, guess is the GOP is now Donald Trump's party, even after what happened on January the 6th. And according to a lot of polls, about 80% of Republicans, and according to a recent national survey by the University of Virginia Center for Politics and Project Homefire, they believe that, quote, our country needs a powerful leader in order to destroy the radical and immoral currents prevailing in society today. And a third of Republicans believe violence is justified to save our country, according to a national survey by the Public Religion Research Institute. So, and we're also getting reports of massive and comprehensive voter suppression underway, which would indicate that Donald Trump could actually be elected by foul means rather than fair in 2024. So this is the party that Latinos want to join. And I find that extraordinary. Is it because uh, we're not getting a strong enough counter-narrative from the Democrats in general about these very apparent threats to American democracy itself? You know, I think that the it remains to be seen just how much the average American and the American public is actually recognizing these breaches of democratic norms in the sort of distortion of our institutions. Uh, it's not clear to me uh, that all under all Americans understand and appreciate what the effect uh, of these things will be. Um, but, you know, I, I don't think it's fair to sort of single out Latinos, you know, in, in, in being as sort of incredulous about their political choices as it is, you know, as, as we otherwise could be just as incredulous about you know, white, white working class Americans doing the same thing. Um, they're all ultimately making the same bargain and forgiving the same kind of actions. And so, you know, you know, we have to I, I think, you know, it's more science, social scientifically. We have to look at these voters in many ways as, you know, being of equal capacity to reject these kinds of actions. Well, Justin Guest, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. Your article is definitely a wake-up call to the Democratic Party, wouldn't you say? Yes, well, I think I think they're following the polls pretty closely too, but uh, hopefully you know, my work can shine some light on what's going on. And again, I've been speaking with Justin Guest, who's an Associate Professor of Policy and Government at George Mason University Shah School of Policy and Government, where he studies immigration and politics of demographic change. He's the author of five books, including The New Minority, White Working Class Politics in an Age of Immigration and Inequality, Crossroads, Comparative Immigration Regimes in a World of Demographic Change, and the forthcoming book, Majority Minority. And he has an article at CNN why Latinos are turning to the Republican Party. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. 
and I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone in America A quiet voice singing something to me An angel song about the home of the brave in this land here Oh